Thank you, Maria. Uh, I actually didn't realize how long that was when I sent it in. Sorry about that. Um, as I'll comment later, if I had read, if I'd had her read the actual instructions of the building of the tabernacle in Exodus, it would have been even longer. So, um, you know, we got a short version today. Um, I also want to uh, say that the, the title of the sermon's wrong, uh, which is my fault. Um, it's called the temple. It's really the tabernacle. Um, and we could talk later about the differences of that, but uh, you're not going to hear much about the temple today because I'm going to talk about the tabernacle. So uh, that was my mistake when I was communicating with Harrison and, and Michael about the sermon today. And so as you've already heard, we're starting Advent. All right. Um, you've heard this means arrival or coming, so we're waiting. Uh, that's what in church history this is, has been. We anticipate the arrival or coming of Jesus. Um, and there's this anticipation, as Michael so well has pointed out. And, it, it, you know, it's really a little odd, isn't it? I mean, we're waiting for something that's already come, right? We're waiting for Jesus. He's come already. But as Michael told us earlier, this reminds us that we're waiting for his second coming, when the Redeemer is going to bring full and complete restoration and redemption, when justice and mercy will flow down and will be fully served and completed, when heaven will come down, and we're told in Revelation, when the new heavens and the new earth will be consummated. And we're waiting for God to dwell with his people forever. That's the arrival we're really waiting for now, is Jesus' second coming and the consummation of the new heavens and the new earth. Now, you might not think it's so obvious, but this actually ties back to the, our year-long consideration on cultivating shalom. Uh, we've been talking about this over and over through the year. Uh, we explored it as, we, as it was lived out in Acts, as the early believers cultivated shalom in their lives. We learned how to find out, uh, sorry, we learned how to find it in the Beatitudes because shalom is not found where the world thinks it's to be found. Everything is upside down. And we developed wisdom and skills regarding cultivating shalom as we looked at selections from the Proverbs. But Jesus' second coming and the consummation of the new heavens and the new earth, that is what we're waiting for, and that is the true shalom that we're all longing for. And so for this Advent season, we're going to look at images of heaven and the new heavens and the new earth that we see in Scripture. Because if it's Jesus' return and this, this thing that's going to culminate uh, is everything we're waiting for and it's the fulfillment of shalom, can we learn anything about this now that will help sustain us as we wait. And fortunately, the Bible doesn't leave us without some insight into this. This insight comes through a series of images. They can only hint at the nature of heaven and the nature of the new heavens and the new earth. And they're, they're hard to understand fully, and, and they are both overwhelming and incomplete at the same time, uh, which really shouldn't surprise us. I mean, does any of us really think we could understand heaven, even if he were told about it plainly. These images, as Paul puts in 1 Corinthians 13, are a bit like seeing through a mirror dimly. But we should nevertheless try to understand these images as best we can. So then, our Advent series, our waiting series over the next four weeks is going to be to survey some of the images of heaven and the new heavens and the new earth that we find in Scripture, so we can learn more about how to live and how to cultivate shalom in this in-between time. And although our text is from Hebrews today, we're starting our study of the images of heaven with biblical images from the Old Testament. And today we're going to learn 
God is holy and accessible, and his accessibility leads us to shalom. Let me pray. Lord, uh, this is such a rich text, uh, such a, uh, so much here. Um, let us understand um, what you would have us understand today so that we might uh, live well for you and live in shalom. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now when somebody mentions heaven, what is the very first thing that comes into your mind? When I said a few moments ago that we would be looking at images of heaven and you began to think about heaven for those first few seconds, what came to mind? I think for many of us, when we think about heaven, we first think about it as our final destination. Where the redeemed go to live with God after death. Perhaps you even thought of loved ones who have preceded you in death and are in heaven even now as we speak. However, if we look at the full sweep of biblical revelation, heaven as the final destination or abode, if you will, of the redeemed is not really emphasized very much. It's, that's not because it's not true. It's simply not emphasized. What's emphasized is that heaven is God's home. Heaven is his abode. Deuteronomy 26, 15 says heaven is his holy habitation. Now, remarkably, God is gracious to his people, and he actually reveals some aspects of the structure of heaven as it is now. Isn't that incredible? I mean, God gives us a view of some aspects of the structure of heaven as it exists now. Where does he do this? In the structure of the tabernacle. And we see this in our first passage from today, Hebrews 8, 1 through 6. Now, before we get to the part about the tabernacle itself, in the first few verses, Jesus is actually extolled as the high priest. The high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. Now, a couple of verses later in verse 4, it says a really interesting thing. Now, if he were on earth he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. Remarkably, Hebrews tells us that if Jesus were still on earth, he would not be a priest at all. How could that be? Well, it's because he didn't come from the priestly lineage. These, there are, these are the one, those are the ones who are offering gifts to the law, as it says, gifts according to the law, as it says in verse 4. In the Old Testament, priestly activities were performed by three groups of people. The high priest, he was one. There, were, there was one high priest, that's what I'm trying to say. The priests and the Levites. There was only one high priest at any one time, and he and the other priests looked after the ceremonial, ceremonial vessels and performed the sacrifices, but they all had to be descendants of Aaron. And the Levites were all Levites. Right? So they were all descended from Levi, one of the sons of Israel. Jesus was not a male descendant of Aaron, nor was he a Levite. So he could not have served as a priest in the earthly tabernacle. But he's our high priest now, and we'll come back to that later. But more importantly for our consideration of heaven today, we want to look at verse 5 where the tabernacle is described as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, see that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. 
The authors of Hebrews is telling us that the tabernacle that the Israelites moved through the wilderness and ultimately set up in the promised land was a copy or a shadow of heaven. I just think that's incredible. Isn't that amazing? Now, of course, needless to say to Moses, yeah, be sure you follow the rule, the, the, the instructions really well. If this is a copy or a shadow of heaven. And don't you think it'd be good for us to understand that structure a little bit more so we have some understanding of the nature of heaven now? And so that's what we're going to do. As I said, if, if I really wanted to have Maria read a lot, we could have read about the instructions of the, um, the, the, uh, that were given to Moses. That's three chapters in Exodus. Or the building of the tabernacle, that was four chapters in Exodus. But, but here in Hebrews 8, we kind of have the Reader's Digest condensed version. And if you're not old enough to know what that is, uh, the Cliff Notes version, or I don't know if you're too young to know what a Cliff Notes is, I don't even know what the corresponding thing is. Wikipedia? I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. All right? And as I go through this, I thought some pictures would help. So we're going to have a slide come up. And uh, this first slide um, is going to help us understand the nature of the tabernacle. Now, Hebrews 9, the text itself, starts with the tabernacle itself, which is that tent-like structure that you see in the back. It says the temple. Um, it's really the tabernacle, um, but it, uh, that's, that's in the back. And um, uh, if we look at the next slide, oh, no, go back to the first slide, okay. Before we get there, um, uh, I want to uh, talk a little bit about this courtyard that you see. You see this entrance curtain and this courtyard that's in front of the tabernacle there labeled the temple. This is where the animals were actually sacrificed. Uh, they were not sacrificed in the tabernacle itself. We'll come back to why that was true in a few minutes. And, and around the bronze altar, or the brazen altar as it's called, you'll see tables in which the sacrifices were slaughtered and prepared for the various burnt offerings that were part of the law. And then there's the laver, or big sink, if you will, for ritual washings as well. Now that picture of the cow and the man give you some sense of the scale of the outer court and the tabernacle. But just to show you uh, a little bit better, given our modern sensitivities, uh, let's look at the next one. Uh, and that shows you compared to a football field, all right? And um, so uh, it's not very big. It's about 150 feet. The courtyard's about 150 feet by 75 feet. Not real big. People eligible to enter that outer court would have been the high priest, priests and Levites, as well as those who were bringing a sacrifice to be offered to God. Now, let's move further into Hebrews 9 and go on to the next slide now. Yeah, good. All right. Let's look at this as I read Hebrews 9. Uh, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, or in our text today, the most holy place. So we're going to stop there for a minute. The text almost sounds like it's describing two tabernacles, doesn't it? It talks about an outer tabernacle and an inner tabernacle, the most holy place and the holy place. But it was really just one tabernacle separated, as you can see, um, into two parts. There was the lampstand and the table, uh, the menorah there, the table of showbread, as it just says. According to the instructions given to Moses, there was also an altar of incense in the most holy place. You see that illustrated here. Now, it's actually stated to be in the 
most holy place in our passage. And if you want to discuss that further, come see me later, but I'm not going to worry myself with it right now. Because what I want to point out most importantly is that thing called the veil. This is the second veil from verse 3. So as you look at the tabernacle, what you see, there's the courtyard in front, and there's the outer veil, which separates the courtyard from the holy place, and the inner veil, or the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. Inside the most holy place of the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant, Hebrews 4 says, 9-4 says, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod, which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, the illustration is not completely clear on that. So you see something back there pointed out called the ark. And the ark contained the, the jar and Aaron's rod and, and the table of the law, the Ten Commandments. But resting on the ark, and, and not very clear from this picture, resting on the ark was the mercy seat, a golden seat with two cherubim behind, around it. The mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant is really the throne of God. So what the Holy of Holies represents in the tabernacle is the throne room of God. Verse 6 then describes the activities of the priests and the high priest. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, the holy place, performing the divine worship, but into the second, only the holy priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The priests were allowed to enter the holy place for their duties, but only the high priest could enter the holy of holies, and then only once a year. And this is why sacrifices took place outside in the courtyard, because you had to have sacrifices for the priests to even go into the tabernacle uh, and certainly into the most holy place. Without the sacrifice for their sins and the sins of the people, without the shedding of blood, they could not go in. So in this tabernacle structure, God, Hebrew says God is giving us a view to heaven. Well, what have we learned so far? What would the Jewish person in the time before Jesus understand from this structure about God? Well, the first thing that a Jewish person would have learned is that God was with them. This was God's throne room. So God, the, the Israelites are moving around. They're taking the tabernacle with them. They're setting it up each time they're camping. It only joins them in the promised land. And so God is with them. It represents his home. They, he was their God. But the structure itself tells us something more. And to, to understand that, you need to ask another question. What were the purpose of the veils? Why were there veils there? Why would the throne of God have to be separated from the people by one or more veils? And the answer can be very simply put, it was not to protect God from the people. It was to protect the people from the glory and the holiness of God. From the structure of the tabernacle, then, we should see represented and the Israelite would have learned as well the overwhelming and unapproachable holiness of God. God is completely, utterly holy without sin, unable to tolerate the presence of sin, and sinful people could not be in the presence of God without being destroyed without a suitable sacrifice. 
And we're going to talk about Jesus' work in a minute. But I want you to stop and think about the overwhelming and unapproachable holiness of God for a bit. His transcendence over the creation, his purity, his moral perfection, utterly without sin, hating sin, desiring justice. This is what we mean by the holiness of God. And if you don't, at least for a moment, think like Isaiah when you consider the holiness of God then I don't think you really understand the holiness of God. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah had a vision of God in heaven, and he was undone. He wrote, in the, king of king, in the, he wrote, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In a word then, what we learn from this Old Testament image of heaven given to us in the structure of the tabernacle is that God is utterly holy. He is not like us. We are not like him. He is the one to be feared above all others. In my devotional this week, I was reading Luke 12, and in verse 4 and 5, Jesus says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You know, when I was a young believer and I first read that, I thought that meant I was supposed to fear Satan. All right? Doesn't mean that. It means that we're to fear God. After all, it's the transcendent, creator, just, holy God who has the authority to cast unrepentant sinners into hell. You can turn off the slides now, thanks. Now you might be thinking, this is an odd way to start Advent. What an unusual way. This is a time of joy and merriment, and I'm starting Advent with the consideration of the utter holiness of God and the utter hopelessness of sinning people. I want you to start Advent with fearing God. I don't think you should think that's unusual at all. Because without this image of heaven, without this understanding of the holiness and transcendence of God Almighty, then reenacting what Jesus has already done and looking forward to his return is little more than Pollyannish dribble, which is largely what Christmas has become in our culture. So let's move on through Hebrews to see what Jesus did about this. Verse 11 in chapter 9, But when Jesus appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You know, that is such a great summary of what Jesus did. It's really hard to say much more, so I'm just going to kind of repeat it in different words. Christ is indeed a high priest, though he's not of priestly lineage. 
But that's okay because Christ's service as high priest is not in the earthly tabernacle, but is in the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not of this creation. And although he was perfect and sinless, he entered the holy place, indeed the most holy place, the throne room of God. Remember, he sits on the right hand of God. That's what it's told us in the first verse of chapter uh, 8 of Hebrews. He sits at God's right hand, not through, uh, not through the shedding of animal sacrifice, but through the shedding of his own blood, sacrificing himself. And what a wonderful thing happens because of this, because in Hebrews 10, we now read, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest of the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We too are not of priestly lineage. Remember, without a suitable sacrifice were we to enter the tabernacle, we would be destroyed, snuffed out. Woe is me, cried Isaiah. But incredibly, because of the sacrifice of his flesh and blood, those who follow Jesus, those of us who follow Jesus, are enabled to go through the veil. Matthew 27, 51 says, the veil was torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross. Therefore, we can enter into the tabernacle of God, into his throne room, into the very presence of God, and this should take your breath away. Every time you think about it, this should take your breath away. And this is where our Advent waiting really should begin. We should recall the utter transcendence of holy and holiness of God as he sits in his throne room. We should recall from Proverbs what we heard, learned earlier this year, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And godly fear is the correct response to God's transcendence and holiness. And then recalling and basking in awe at the bountiful redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus. This is where we should start Advent. And I don't know if you noticed it, but we did that today in a song. Our first song, last phrase, by thine own sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. So I said at the beginning, we wanted to learn what these images of heaven could teach us about living in this in-between time. That's how we're going to start Advent, and we want to learn more. How do we cultivate shalom between this time? And the author of Hebrews actually provides us with some insights. The first is found back in verse 22, which I just read. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an easeable conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can and should draw near in full assurance, yes, with, with a godly fear, but with full assurance because we have been pardoned and cleansed by the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, practically speaking, this drawing near is found in a variety of ways. Uh, this happens differently for all of us. We, we all draw near to God, preferably daily, I hope daily for all of us, in devotional times. And I don't think I can really emphasize that enough, the importance of a really a daily time uh, that you're drawing near to God and reading his word and praying. Um, most of you know I'm, I'm a physician. I'm actually a retired physician now, but I still recall my internship. Um, and oddly enough, I kept the number of hours I worked every week, or I was in the hospital every week when I was uh, an intern. 
It was 110. All right, there's only 168 hours in a week. I was in the hospital 110. Didn't make it to church very much, I'm afraid to say. The thing that sustained my faith was my devotion. That devotional time I did every day. So I can't emphasize enough how important that is. I hope and pray that you're doing that. It's not for your benefit. You're not going to win favor from God by doing your devotion. It's for your benefit in building up your life and building up shalom in you so you can spread shalom around you. We draw near to God in special prayer times. We have those times in our church family, uh, regularly in our community groups. We have healing prayer. Occasionally we have prayer retreats. And we draw near to God in corporate worship, and we're doing that today, drawing near to God because of the sacrifice of our high priest. Now, the author tells us a few other ways in which this image of heaven can teach us about living in the in-between time, and I only have a moment to consider them. But in verse 23 through 25, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All right, so we got several things here. Let's start actually with the last one. Because you, can, um, because you can draw near to God, because you can draw near to God, don't forsake meeting together. Have you ever heard people say they believe in Jesus, but they don't go to church? I've heard a lot of people that through the years. They usually follow that by saying, there's just a bunch of hypocrites that go to church. <laughs> uh, that's right. Um, that's right. If you mean by sinners, you mean hypocrites, then you are correct. We're all sinners, okay? Um, so are they, but I try not to point that out. But... Um, Anyway, isn't it incredible that at this early time in church history, they already have people who are not coming to church, coming to regular corporate worship, whatever that looked like at that time. I just think that's incredible. Nothing changes under the sun, does it? Why do we need to meet together? Why do we need to not forsake meeting together? It's in order to encourage one another. And what are we encouraging one another to do? I think it's found in the preceding verses and it can be summarized as encouragement for right thinking and for right living. Meeting together and encouraging one another will help each one of us hold fast our confession without wavering. Because you can draw near to God in his throne room, and because you have the encouragement of believers around you, you can be confident in your faith without wavering as you live in a world and a culture that seems to be increasingly anti-Christian and anti-religious. I've been reminded of that, how that can work over the last 15 months or so. Of course, I attend church regularly here. We hosted community group for years. We go regularly now. But about 15 months ago, Andy Kester is one of, a, one of the preaching team. You know him. He's got a beard, not much hair. I'm not describing myself. Um, he's a little taller than I am. You know him. Andy asked me to start meeting with him to help him with some accountability. I didn't realize how important that would be for me over the last 15 months as we shared our struggles, difficulties, joys, blessings. It's been a really good time for me and for him. That meeting together, ostensibly to help him, has helped me hold fast my confession without wavering. And meeting together and encouraging one another will stimulate each of us to love and good deeds. Now, these good deeds aren't meant to win favor. You're not going to make it to heaven because of your good deeds to somehow present yourself worthy to enter the throne room based on your accomplishments. 
But these good deeds come because we respond to the one who has made us worthy and who has given us the Holy Spirit to encourage and empower us to overcome some of our sinful desires so that we can do our best to love others and do good deeds. And it is this love and good deeds which will cause shalom to be manifested among us and around us. That's quite a way to start the Advent season, all right? An image of heaven, an image of the throne room of God, no longer separated from his people by the veil. This image is telling us that the transcendent, holy, creator, to be feared God, sitting on his heavenly throne, is wholly accessible to us because of the work of Jesus in his first coming. And that accessibility is through the reading of his word, prayer, and worship. But someday, at Jesus' second coming, God will be wholly accessible to us in ways that we can scarcely imagine or dream. That is something worth waiting for. Amen.